0: Hey, this is Tiffany Aurora. You're listening to the Entrepreneurs and Artists Podcast. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Entrepreneurs and Artists podcast. Andrew Ossian is joining me today. But hey, listen, before we get into that, if you haven't already followed the podcast on your favorite podcast app, I hope that you will take a second to do so. That's one of the best ways that you can support the show, and you'll get notifications when new episodes drop, which is so convenient. All right, so Andrew Ossian is an author, a writer, and a game developer. His most recent novel is called Spellbinders, the not-so-chosen one. It's a middle-grade fantasy novel, and it tells the story of Ben, a 12-year-old boy whose parents have recently divorced. He's had to move to a new town. He's feeling kind of lost. And he's just looking for someone to remind him that, hey, he's still special. He's still the hero of his own story. In our conversation, Andy and I talked about intentionally creating space for reader agency inside of a story, how the narratives of books and video games align and differ, leaning into and honoring the things in life that give us energy, creating special memories with your kids, and so much more. I'm delighted to introduce you to the imaginative and insightful Andrew Ossian. right, so I'm very excited to welcome Andrew Ossian to the Entrepreneurs and Artists podcast. Andy, welcome.
1: Hi, Tiffany. Uh, Thank you. It's really exciting to be here. I'm I'm glad you asked.
0: So you've got a new book out called Spellbinders, the not-so-chosen one, which is a middle grade fantasy novel. And I picked up a copy. Sometime in the last few weeks, I had a chance to read it and it was, it great. was great fun. Um, okay. The characters, the characters are just they're so well crafted and I really felt myself very invested in each of them individually. And so I was wondering if we could start by talking a little bit about Ben, who is the main character in Spellbinders. If you could tell us just a little bit about him, because I'm wondering where did his character come from? Sort of what was his origin story and why did you decide that you wanted to write a character about Ben?
1: Well, that's an interesting question because I think it might be obvious to people who know me that Ben is very much inspired by by me, by at least a, a prominent facet of my personality and my interests. And just a little overview on the book. So uh, in Spellbinders, Ben is a character who is in middle school and is going through some family upheaval as his parents separate. And uh, he and his mother moved to the suburbs from kind of the big city, which is unnamed, but it's it's a place that he felt very at home and where his life was very exciting and he had a group of friends and he had an identity there. And he's sort of uprooted and moved out to the suburbs where of course he gets that kind of teen and preteen ennui where it's like nothing ever happens here. And you kind of have that that dilemma. Um, it's, it's very real, I think, to a lot of kids of that age. And he has in his mind the idea that if something happened to me it would prove that i am as important as i believe myself to be <laughs> that that i am the hero of my own story which is something we always uh, we're always sort of told or we we think about when it comes to stories is that you know everyone of us on earth kind of thinks of ourselves as the the key protagonist of of our own like life stories and and uh, he really believes that and he believes that he's kind of destined for greatness Um, And feeding into that is this, are are his interests, which are primarily fandom related. So tabletop board games, video games, films, movies, comics, where he has this vocabulary and this way of looking at the world where people are kind of sometimes special um, in a way that maybe in the real world, it doesn't happen quite as often. And so what happens is that his dream comes true is that one day... Uh, a mysterious stranger, this young girl comes up to him and tells him sort of what he's always wanted to hear uh, is that he is a a very important person. He is this chosen one and that she is from some other world and has been sent to find him and that he uh, has a journey and an objective in front of him that like everything rests on his shoulders. And so he's given this proposition of, do you want to leave all this behind? Which of course he's ready to say yes to. So so Ben very much uh, echoes a lot of the feelings i had as a young person is that any any moment now someone's going to come up and tell me that this boring life i live is really all just it's an illusion and that there's more out there waiting for me uh and that's kind of how i got through all the the minutiae and the um monotony of of growing up when things weren't immediately interesting to me i would my my imagination would wander and i would start to think of like How could I make this situation more exciting? It would be if something exciting happened and I was whisked away. So he is a lot like me in that regard. Um, And then I also am a huge player of games and I work in the video game development space and I've designed pen and paper games since I was very young as a a way to to think creatively. And I think the biggest difference from the Ben character is is he's a little, he can be smug, he can be overconfident, a little conceited he has more faith in himself, I think, um, than a situation would really. <laughs> well, I guess yeah, I don't know how to say it exactly. But he, he feels very confident in his abilities, um, even when he shouldn't be and he grows yeah. into them a little bit. But at the very beginning, he he's set in his opinions, and when he has those opinions and ideas challenged is when he starts to realize that the world very literally does not revolve around him.
0: Well, and it sets him up so well, because he really has such a great growth trajectory over the course of the story, because he does start out that way. You're like, yeah, he wants the world to revolve around him. He wants to be right. the hero of the story. He's very confident, and he's just going to go with whatever, and he's going to be the hero, in a, in a sense. And, and he, is so, he is the hero of his own story. I mean, I think that's true, but he definitely, he grows up over the course of that. Yeah, story and I think that Denmark.
1: a fun thing about the story is that we get to tell it in both a very mundane, real world the real world circumstances of his life with, and his relationship with his mother and his kind of old friends from the life he left behind and his new friends uh, from the adventures in the book. But then there's also sort of this, this overarching kind of meta idea that, you know, as the the main character of a game or whatever, you just, everything is catered to you. Everything is done for your benefit. But in real life, it's easy to forget that there are people around you that you need to watch out for and be, be there for. And the figure, in the book as his mother, who is going through so many of her own troubles and just keeping the entire family going. And he is, I wouldn't say he's oblivious to it, but he he definitely does not register to the point that he should. And so he he kind of sees himself as the victim of everything while his mother is struggling. And so them doing that simultaneously as the rest of the kind of epic fantasy story is happening was a, a key part of his character's growth.
0: What drew you to the world of video games initially? Because I mean, you could have. Um, you're, you're clearly a very good storyteller, so you could have gone a great many different ways with your career. Oh, but you, you you chose you chose you write. You you have written, I think, several novels at this point mm-hmm. in time, and you write for video games. So what what drew you to the video game industry?
1: Um, just a fan, really. It was another avenue in which I could tell stories. And early on, I was I, I definitely grew up during the the explosion. in in the pop culture mainstream of video games is like something you have in your house and something that your friends come over and you gather around. And I learned right away sort of the the emotional heft and impact that that certain game stories could have depending on what the intent of the designer was. I mean there, you know, you kind of have your your arcade games when you're growing up in the 80s, you've got your arcade games. It's a great it's, it's almost like a, like a pub game. You go and you just sort of play pool or whatever, and it's it's a leisure activity, but there's not much, you don't think about it much beyond that. But once designers started trying to tell stories or use the medium to tell new kinds of stories where they could comment on, on the interactivity and the idea that there's a player who's coming in as a character and, and there's these multiple layers that things like books or even film didn't have yet, I started to, you know, have new emotions from encountering those stories that I had never had before. And I wanted to be a filmmaker for a long time. I mean, I was influenced by a lot of the, the 80s filmmakers and the 70s filmmakers that, that some so many generation Xers were. And they're sort of the foundation foundational figures of film now and kind of where we're going with entertainment and everything. So like a lot of people I knew, I had a video camera, like one of the first home models that our our family had. And we would make our own movies on the weekends and we would do all that kind of thing. Uh, write them and sort of quote unquote, produce them and mm-hmm. try to emulate those people. And uh, so I thought, I thought I'd go to college as a filmmaker, because for me, computer science was never really an option because I'm, I struggled with math. I didn't think you could do stories and games, but as soon as that became a possibility and teams became bigger and more people became specialists, then I realized there was a spot for a, a writer or someone who focuses primarily on that and didn't have to do the computer or, or tech side of things.
0: So I'm not I'm not a a big gamer myself. I mean, I've played a handful of games over the years, but I I, that's not a world that I'm in very much, but I am curious. Um, I know I'm ai am a writer. I write sci fi fantasy and I um, am I run this community in the Baltimore area that's for novelists and screenwriters. And I'm curious what what would you say are some of the biggest lessons that novelists or screenwriters could learn from game design and narrative for video games?
1: One of the key parts of approaching a narrative from a, a, like from a game perspective, as opposed to a more of a passive, you know, prose perspective, it's just the, it is the interactivity of it. It is the fact mm. that you are there. There's an, a, a level of attention and engagement that you don't necessarily um, get with prose. I think that there is a magic to books that games can't you sure. know reproduce in the same way that sure. there's, a, you know, but I think that you're always looking for ways to engage the player and make them feel like they are experiencing or creating the story that's that's taking place in a game. Um, mm-hmm. We, all, we all often talk about player agency, and that's kind of a way to talk about giving, you know, if, you, if you're telling a story... In a game, you don't want it to be just, you know, cinematics or those clip scenes where it's just you're just watching and pressing a button to advance them. I mean, for a long time, that was kind of the mode of storytelling for games. And ideally, what you want to do is be able to have the gameplay and the mechanics and the things that you are doing as a player bridge the gap between you and the story so when you're doing something in a game that's actually making you feel closer to the characters who are doing it or makes you feel like you're more immersed in the story that's taking place as opposed to something where you sort of have this dissonance and you're like why am i pressing this button when i'm sliding something in the game there's a there's a lot of clever ways they've they've figured out in game design to make players kind of lose themselves in a game story
0: the the idea of player agency i this is not a fully formulated thought but i think the idea of just thinking about that concept and thinking of it as just the reader's agency as well i think could potentially really help a writer because the idea of taking yourself Mm -hmm. out of that story for a second and really like how how would you give the reader agency within this story i think that's a really Powerful question that a lot of writers could do a lot of things with.
1: You know, I teach interactive storytelling, which I did at the University of Baltimore for a few semesters, and uh, and I was preparing my lesson plan and all my materials. I think it's a, a great exercise to have prose writers who have never done it to write interactive fiction. I think it's mm. it's just one of those things that you just you can learn a lot, even at the most beginner level shallow interactivity. There are certain apps you can you can get that have a lot of customization and you can use them in really deep and complex ways, but you can just write almost like a choose-your-own adventure. And I would always mm-hmm. have students do that right away because almost immediately you start seeing ways you can add a little bit of player agency or reader agency in ways that you never would have thought of before. And so I think that is interesting. And there, there when I think of beta readers and... Writing groups and things like that, where you have people kind of look at your works in progress. I mean, Games is really well known for doing that too, with their Q and A and their usability teams, where you come in and you have people play it, and you you take notes and you're watching them, and they you know you record it and you play it back and you note everything, and then that gives you immediate feedback on what's working and not working. And it's, yep. There's not really like a a comp for reading, but you know there's a similar process.
0: It. Well, and I love that because even like so many things in life, just being attuned to that and paying attention to it, yeah. y- you will probably be surprised at how often the possibility of doing something like that pops up in writing. Yeah.
1: Do you? I mean, as a writer, can I ask you questions?
0: Sure. <laughs> go for <laughs> it. If you want to? <laughs> I mean, as a writer,
1: do you? Do you? I, I know. I, I know this is true for actors and game designers and writers, but a lot of people, myself included, don't always like to go back and read what they've written. Mm-hmm. After it's sort of like, quote unquote, done. So mm-hmm. approaching it from a perspective of, I'm going to read it as though I'm a reader is is a really interesting and I think it puts people in a vulnerable place when they're a creator. And I was wondering, yeah. like, do you do you tend to do that? Do you read your stuff as a reader would read it? Or do you can you can you only read it as the person who's writing it? Because you have to do that, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me personally, it's, I can do both, provided that I'm able to give myself some time and space away Mm. from it. And I think that that break is really essential for me personally. And then I also have noticed over the years that to be able to read my own writing as a reader, I pretty much get one go you know, like, because once I get into it, once I've read it a few <laughs> times, then all the old stuff comes back. Yeah. And then I'm back in the mindset of a writer again. So it's kind of like this small little window, but, um, and I have to be like very much in the mindset of it. And I'm with you. It's not, it's not very much fun necessarily to go back and read my own stuff as a writer or as a reader, but there is something to it. It's a very different experience. And, and I, for me that process has definitely opened up moments where I'm like, oh, that part was amazing. Like I almost forgot that I wrote it. And it, yeah, and yeah, on the yeah. other side, that part bored me to tears. I got to <laughs> rip that out. <laughs> so, it's both.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I was listening to a uh an interview with a an actor on like a really popular sitcom from years ago who and I think I think this is common too. It's where it's they know so little about their own work at this point because years have passed and they were they were in the zone when they were making it. So, you know, they go in, they hit their beats, they do their lines, they are as funnier as, you know, whatever, dramatic, whatever they need to be. And then 10 years later, people on the internet are obsessed with it. And they ask them questions about it. And then I don't remember that. Like, I just was doing my job that day. You know, I had, I was going through a divorce, I was, you know, car payments or something. And I just find that interesting, because that's, I think that's the same with a lot of writers I know, too, is they go and they do events and people ask them a question about a book. And you know, it's not completely true, but I do think it's interesting because we have, we have to move on yeah. sometimes to, to keep much. that distance. Like you said, to keep that distance, to keep that those fresh eyes to do new stuff. I, I have a very vivid memory of getting my first published book in my hands. And I was at, my, at the office where I was working my job and I went for a walk for lunch and I was reading the book, which I hadn't read in months at this point because it had gone mm-hmm. through production. And I remember reading parts of it and I kind of paused and stopped in my walk. And I thought, okay, that's pretty good. That was pretty good. As in like my nice. worst fear was that I was going to read it and just be like, this is as bad as I remember. So, <laughs> oh, no. so i to just be like, okay, okay. That's I- I'm-, I'm okay with that. It's out in the world and yeah. I can't change it anymore, but
0: at yeah. least it wasn't
1: a complete disaster, which is, you know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I do know some reader or some writers who just absolutely cannot, will not touch their stuff once it's done. Once it's done, it's done. Yeah. Like, let me forget about it. And What's move next? Back. Yeah. That's a, yeah. yeah. But I am curious. So I mean, we've talked a little bit about like editing and the feedback process and beta readers and whatnot. What does your editing process look like in terms of getting feedback on works in progress? And, and yeah. I ask this because I don't, I don't necessarily think there's like any sort of right or wrong answer, but I see r- writers go all different which ways with this. And some people, you know, they have a huge selection of people, and they get they get feedback just on a continual basis. They're very specific mm-hmm. about what they want. Like, I want feedback on this. I want feedback on what you felt about this. I want line edits, you know. And others are very open. They, you know, they just like tell me anything at all that you want you want to to give me in terms of feedback and reflection back about what you felt about the story. So, what does your your editing process look like when you're developing a new manuscript?
1: It's interesting because I wish I had more of a, a working writer's group. It's always something I've sort of dreamed of in my ideal workspace would be that I have this, you know, wine and cheese writer's group that we meet together and we laugh and we, you know, only talk about writing about a third of the time. The rest is gossip. And, and, um, I just, I, Maybe it sounds kind of pathetic, but I don't have much of a social life beyond sort of my family. My My extended family is very, very local and very large and, and very boisterous or energetic and involved in each other's lives in a really good way. And like they they are our whole, war, our whole world as a family. So be, with that, the day job and then the writing stuff, like I don't, there's not a ton of time to like kind of have this this network of people, even if I wanted it, but I do rely on a handful of people. Unfortunately, it's not something where I have like a rolling process where, you know, I'm, I'm sending out new versions. I usually go, I usually start with really rough, a really rough idea of what I want to do. or I'll, I'll bang out a very detailed outline just to, just to make it have lot, make logical sense in my head, but it is almost more of an exercise than it is a document that plays any part in anything. Like, a long time ago, I got rid of the idea of using an outline to write because I was so stressed about trying to hit the beats of the outline that like sitting down and saying, okay, in this chapter, I have to do this, do these three things, these three bullet points was like more stressful than just sitting down and writing something that I felt like writing in that moment. And I know that a lot of times writing is work and it's doing what you like forcing yourself to do, which you don't really feel like you're doing, but I got rid of that. But I do write an outline just to kind of put myself in the headspace of, oh, okay, I can see." the start and the end and like where this could be a book. And then I, I I write the book and it takes a long time to write the first draft. And the first draft is me figuring out what I'm writing the book about. And it's, it really is just an exercise in building, uh, or like, I hate the word content, but it's like content generation and, and figuring out ideas. And then that, usually goes to a couple key readers who then help me figure out what I'm trying to say. And so the second draft is like, the delta is huge from the first to the second, because then I'm like, okay, now I know that this book is about X. I'm going to sit down to write a book about X, as opposed to the first one, which is exploration. Super uh, inefficient and time consuming. And I would love to, I, I hear these, these kind of urban myths, these urban legends and like, out in the ether of authors who like sit down and write a book. And it's like, they change like a couple words, at, you know, at the editor <laughs> and then it goes out the door. And I'm like, I don't know how I've I,
0: I yet to meet that. any of those people in real life, but I guess I've heard those myths as well. Yeah.
1: yeah, I, I haven't either. Every single person I meet in real life is like, this is a messy, ugly, like me in tears on the floor for months at a time process. But then there there's like, I don't know if it's like a, a different generation or like people who didn't have the ability to cut and paste and mm. like, how to do it right the first time? Because otherwise, how do you revise a book on a typewriter? I, I have no idea how people did that.
0: But okay, but it's interesting what you mentioned. You mentioned efficiency and and what energizes you, and I think those are important things. Because I, so I actually have a process. I think that's so, somewhat similar to yours. I know a lot of writers who work from an outline. I will write the first draft first, and then write an outline, which is super yes. weird. But that's yeah. that's how I do because I think it's similar to you. I know. I know part of the story that I'm telling, but sometimes I haven't quite figured out all the subplots and everything else. So that mm-hmm. first that first draft is the same yeah. sort of exploration. And you can
1: write multiple outlines just yes. to kind of like, of course, solidify those things yeah. after you make some realizations. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I agree with you. And I have had the same struggle that it's incredibly inefficient. However, I do find it to be much more energizing. And I think that the idea of what energizes you is so important, especially mm-hmm. for those of us writers that have other careers where this is, it's a serious thing we do. It's not just a hobby. We're not just like writing just for fun, but it's not the only way that we're bringing in income, right? It's not, um, it, yeah, it's it's not our full or complete career. and. Paying attention to what energizes you and being willing, sometimes, to sacrifice some efficiency to be able to stay in that space a little longer. Yes, I personally think that that is worthwhile. What I do you think, think
1: that's. I, I think that is the like the magical golden fruit that like I've you know gotten. I've gotten within the the wall of the sacred garden, and now I've like picked the fruit. And to me, it, it is that. It is that that feeling of um, I you know, there's the runner's high, there's, there's all the, there's all the different, like being in the zone that they they say, but everybody who feels this way about something can attest to it. But like, there is a a feeling you get when you're alive and doing something you're good at, and that you love that is miraculous, right? It is transportive. And I think it's hard to describe as I've just proved to you. Um, But at this point in my life, that's what I'm chasing, right? Like, that's what I, I love to do. And I, I do sneak it in in the in the mornings and in the evenings on the weekends because when I do have those moments, it it makes all that other slog and all that other just content generation just like pushing through an outline, plot mm-hmm. beats to get to the next yep. one. Uh, it makes it all worthwhile. And I, I like Spellbinders is a great example of a a book. It came from me writing. I, I wrote an earlier book called Alienated um, back in 2010, I think, which was a middle my first middle grade book. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a collaborative book. I did it with the with the film director David O. Russell, and I did it with an editor who's the editor in Spellbinders, and we um, became uh, great colleagues and friends during that process. But it was it was a really intense development in very short span of time, and I had a lot going on in other parts of my life. And the only way I could survive that process was to make it something where I, when I sat down to write, I was having fun, and I was laughing mm-hmm. to myself, and I was doing things that made me kind of. Giddy in a way, like you know, when you don't have enough sleep and you're like (laughs) slap happy. I guess they don't know they use that term. Uh And so with spellbinders, it's very much like because this requires so much work, it's such hard work, and it requires so much time. Like I better enjoy it because if I'm not enjoying it, what's the point? And then hopefully that translates to readers, uh, young readers who read it, and are like, oh, this is silly. This is you know, some the person who wrote this is having fun, and and I hope they can appreciate that.
0: So outside of writing in the rest of your life, you have a family, and I know you've just mentioned that you have a very, very big family, extended family in the area. What sort of things energize you and keep you grounded in life in general? That's a
1: great question because I'm always looking for new things to try. I'm I'm a big uh, believer in uh, getting excited about things for a very short amount of time and then moving to something new.
0: (laughs) Novelty is important. We need some of that Novelty.
1: Now. Yeah, that's a great way. I'm a, I'm a pursuer of novelty. Um, yeah, I go into these, I go into these sort of obsessive periods where I like research something and like want to try something. And I mean that's something I enjoy doing because I get to learn a lot and try things. And it, and it can vary from, you know, sports hobbies to technology to foreign language, stuff like that. But for me, the things that keep me keeps me most grounded is it's games. It's kind of predictable in that way. Like I work in video games, but I collect and I love to play and t- and sort of teach and think about board games quite a bit because I don't know there's just something about a good instruction manual that I really get excited about. <laughs> um, that was not it, at all yes. what I was
0: expecting you to say, which is kind of I know.
1: Well, I, I I mean I love the outdoors. We don't get outdoors nearly enough. Uh, we spend two weeks at the beach uh, down in the Outer Banks every year, and um, you know the ocean is something that. I just, I wish I could be next to. Uh, I love traveling. I love traveling quite a bit. um, And we're always looking to try and do more as our children get older. But yeah, games are the things that I find myself taking a break creatively from writing stories in that format, in a linear format, and thinking about how I can replicate experiences or tell stories or um, come up with interesting mechanics. And I'll I'll prototype them sometimes. You know, I'll, I'll build them out in pen and paper Or I'll just kind of find out what other people are doing and learn about sort of what's going on in that space because it's, it's popular again now. It's one of the unconquered parts of games and storytelling that I haven't really looked into as far as publishing goes. So,
0: so there's some, it sounds like there's some opportunity for you to even just challenge yourself by going down that path a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have to say the thing I'm most excited about now, the, the thing that gives me kind of a daily joy is doing events for Spellbinders and kind of getting out mm. and meeting young readers. And I love to read the book aloud. I love to do Q&As with, with people who are, you know, I'm talking people as in like smaller diminutive younger people uh, who have incredible questions uh, yep. about the writing process? I mean, I mean similar questions to the ones you're asking me now. And and they are people who love books as much as I do. And maybe have just just discovered that love, which is such a wonderful place to be. And some of them are storytellers too, and are trying to learn what they can. And I remember being there so well.
0: How do you prepare for these events where you go out and talk about the book? Because I think writers who have published books, I'm sure know this, but for people who are maybe not writers, for listeners who are not writers, there's a certain grind to promotion of any sort of artistic endeavor right be it a book whether it's any new art a new business there's just there's a part of it that's just grueling it's what you sign up for right like when you're ready to promote something you just got to show up and you, you got to give it in front of people and sometimes you know there might be 50 people in the room and people are really excited to be there another time right. you show up and one or two people show up and maybe they didn't even mean to be there but they sort of like accidentally found their way there and that's just part of the process right so how do you how do you prepare and how how do you prepare for, you know, a book signing or other events that you go out and do with kids? Like, how do you prepare and make the most of it, I guess?
1: That's an interesting question because I'm just starting to figure it out. There was a, there was kind of a, a meme going around on early stories going around on social media like a month or so ago of people posting pictures of their empty book events where, mm. you know, every, it's kind of a rite of passage where people are it posting, is. oh, uh, it happened to me now. Like, here I am. And it's them, you know, giving like a, a happy, enthusiastic thumbs up in front of an empty podium or whatever. And I, and I definitely have had those happen, but publicity and events are something I did not do. So I, I published four previous novels. It was they were back in two thousand five, two thousand maybe eight, nine, and two and ten. And the world is so different back then. It's incredible to mm-hmm. think about how how it's changed so dramatically in such a short time with technology and with the internet and social media. And I, you know, like so many authors, I had no interest in that. I have no interest in that. And I think, but those books, it, it it was even more so because I was working a full time job. I had two young kids, like really like babies. And I didn't have a lot of bandwidth for it. And then the, the books themselves weren't ones I was super excited to talk about. I mean, I was excited that I wrote them. I, mm. I, I love the, the stories that I told, but there's something about Spellbinders that just feel it's just more exuberant. It's more energetic. It's sillier. Uh, I love these characters with all their goofball flaws and it's more fun to read and talk about. And, and, and so to me, going to an event is I'm much more enthusiastic about getting ready for that. And and usually I plan to do a little bit of reading. I always like to do Q&A, especially giving, like I said before, giving younger people a prominent part of that. And then I like to do a conversation with uh, segments too, where I get to talk to another author or someone who's read the book and has questions about aspects right. of it and how I developed it. So um, I'm still kind of practicing learning what I like best. Yeah. I'm doing a, a thing this coming weekend and with a couple stops in Ohio and Kentucky and Indiana, and I'm going to do a different thing at each one and we'll see how it goes.
0: Did you plan to make this book goofier, Spellbinders? Or did, did it, like, like, were you thinking of it from an aspect of, like this would just be more fun to go and talk about? Like, I need to do something that I would be a little bit more excited to go out and talk about publicly? Or is that just sort of a, a byproduct of just, it just sort of happened?
1: I think it's a, I think it's a byproduct and it's something that is true to me. Um, mm, interesting. there was definitely something, well, I mean, when you're in your, you know, when you're in your late twenties and early thirties, I was, I was trying to prove something. I was trying to, mm. um, write books that were more serious and that were tackling like big T topics and things like that. I was writing young adult primarily, and there was definitely like a boom, a boom of those books. Then that was when it kind of yep. became what it currently is with, with books by like, John Green and Stephanie Meyer and all these books came out in like 2005, 2006. And it became a huge segment of the publishing world. And a lot of those were kind of these very self-serious, very dramatic teen stories. And so I was part of that. And it didn't it felt more like I had I had layers between me and and what I was doing. You know, they were all true in their own way. but this just feels more like who I am. Okay. Um, I'm always a little bit silly. I'm always I'm always trying to find a joke and something, and it's how I cope. So I, I knew I wanted to do something fun and funny. And I I knew I wanted to do something. The cool thing about Spellbinders too is that it's illustrated. To answer one of your questions from before, I think one of the reasons I got into games too was because I I adore and I'm obsessed with artists, visual artists, uh, because it's something that my brother can do it. My mother can do it. I have no artistic skill when it comes to visual art. So I just, I love watching artists make things. And I always have wanted to see something I wrote get made by somebody who's an incredible mm. artist, whether it's 3D digital art or a painting or you know a video game level. So seeing that stuff when I first got into games, seeing that stuff like come to life was just like my dream come true. So getting a book illustrated was was a huge a moment for me. And so Spellbinders and then having somebody who could bring that silliness to life and that, those kinds of big, bold, imaginative worlds was. Was amazing. So yeah, I did. I did kind of know at this stage in my career that I wanted to be more just kind of me on the page.
0: Yeah, the illustrations in your book. I'm glad you brought those up because they were really fun. It, it reminded me a little bit of like a video game feel, just in terms of the way that you laid out all these character cards as you were going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Through
1: the I knew story. I wanted to do that from the very beginning. I, I pitched that. I pitched that idea. The, the that kind of the format idea back in like 2012. It was very different, very different kind of book, but it had the same idea of where. It was a character who saw the world through this lens of games and it you reproduce design elements of like a, a game manual in a, mm-hmm. a fiction book. So, I mean, not, it's not revolutionary or anything. I mean, it's something that people do all the time. There are plenty of books that do that. But for me, it was a, a nice way to make the Ben character come alive.
0: There's There is something about visual art that just is it's different it it activates a different part of your brain than words do i think
1: yeah totally
0: so i want to ask you a little bit about sort of the systems that you have in place that wrestle with this tension of input and output and um i'll explain a little bit what i mean by that but i think so i think that artists who are able to develop and sustain a practice over the course of time they they sort of put in place some guardrails isn't really the right word but they put in place some systems that help them make sure they're continuing to produce content right on some sort of a regular basis whatever that looks Mm -hmm. like sometimes there's breaks sometimes it's a daily thing um but they have some sort of system that helps them continue to make new art but then there's also this process of needing to make sure that you're getting enough input like new ideas right because i'm sort of of the camp where i don't know if there's really anything original in the world but part of the joy of art is maybe in original combinations right of like bringing something to life in a way that just feels new for the audience or feels new for the reader and so i'm just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about like what does that look like for you um like some people have said they develop like in terms of like output in the way that they they keep um like a sustainable practice they'll say things like you know, I always stop when I know what the next sentence is going to be or I stop, you know, before the end of the chapter so that I have like a little bit of a a runway where I'm like, at least I can sit down and I know immediately I can start and that that start doesn't feel so hard. So what what does what does that look like for you in terms of your process of developing your your books or writing your books?
1: That's interesting because it, I, I, I'm jealous because those people are clearly thinking about writing much in a much more specific <laughs> end. Uh, Programmatic way than I am for sure. I'm like, wow, I don't even know. For me, I think it's much more on a macro level where it's okay. it's it's sort of my my reserves of imagination, energy, and uh, yeah, I mean, probably those two things are the biggest ones.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it's
1: also an interesting balance balancing act because since I do work in a like a highly creative space in the same role as I do as a writer or books, it's balancing that as well and making sure that I'm not like shortchanging either one of those two versions of myself and kind of having this mm. this balance between uh the two sides of myself. I get that question a lot from colleagues in the game business is like how do you how do you manage that? Um yeah. when you do it all day and you come home. And for me the, the quick answer to that question is just when I write I write for me like exclusively. And when I mm. when I work on in games, I'm actually there because it's collaborative environment like I I work in games because I love to work with other artists for example creative people and they're just the most creative people I've ever met and know so yeah but to your other but to your bigger question I definitely love to to look forward and to do new things an anecdote would be when I finished my first book Funny Little Monkey in 2005 it had gone through a long period of revisions and, and, and iteration and Um, You know, in the process of publishing that book, I met my first editor and met my first agent and all had all that stuff happen. And when I was done with it, I was sick of it. And so when it came out, people liked it. And even some people were asking about like what I was going to do next and all, everyone was like, do something that's the same kind of thing because like you have this now, this sort of people like that and they don't want more. They, you should do more of that. And I ended up doing something that was like a complete opposite, like you okay. like going in a complete different direction because I was like, I don't want to do that. Like I'm claustrophobic in that. So that's something that I'm learning to, to work with, you know, Spellbinders is a series. So learning to be on a more regular kind of flip when it comes to producing the stories and writing in a more disciplined way is to make sure that I'm generating the, the stories and getting them done faster and a little bit more efficiently is is good. And then also just making sure I'm in the headspace and I'm still writing stuff that I'm excited about and that makes yeah. me laugh. But it's in that same voice. I definitely need big breaks because I get so kind of immersed in that intense creative space that by the end of it, I would say like the last act or the last third of it it's it is you, you are doing you're in auto processing like there's no I am thinking about it all day every day I'm distracted completely from everything else that's going on around me and all I want to do is is work on it and I when I work on it I come out of it and I and I think to myself I don't even know what I was doing it's it's kind of amazing it really it's a kind of a magic trick and I, I don't I don't know if it's good or bad but we described it earlier like the, the exploration first phase second phase is, phase is a lot more deliberate work uh, targeted work in the third phase is just like finishing. And by when I'm done with that, I usually take a lot of time off. Like I don't always yeah. write every day. Like that's something that's mm-hmm. because it. I have to know what I'm doing to sit down and write, and if I'm not compelled to do it, um, so I definitely give myself space in between and not feeling guilty about it. I even though I've described my process as inefficient and kind of gross, I I've come to terms with it. <laughs> it yeah. It's the way I do it, so. I you know I go through all the all the different stages and and let it happen. Yeah, I mean those are the those are the big things. I don't get as granular as sort of each session doing one thing or so, you know sure. another thing in particular.
0: What do you do in those moments where you do notice that you're in the middle of something and you're just not having fun with it?
1: Get angry. I I. <laughs> That's
0: um, a very honest answer.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it, it it's like working with any. Whether it's like a, you're like, a, working with a horse or working with metal or whatever, it's you're getting resistance from the the piece and, uh, or or the thing that you're working with, and that's super frustrating. Trying to bend it to your will. To me, I think the process of being able to jump around is is like in a in a, a word processing document, right? Like, in the way we write things now, at least I'd say the majority of people, it has changed the world as far as. Being able to like how we think about writing stories, like our brains just work completely differently than, than, than a writer from 50 years ago uh, and later. But sometimes it, it enables my worst tendencies, which is, you know, if I do have mm-hmm. a, a roadblock, I will jump to another thing. And so what I end up doing is I often write books really out of order. And I spend a lot of probably wasted time going through and assembling them and then having to kind of patch them with the mortar so it all feels of a piece. And I don't think that's uncommon at all, but it does mean that instead of bashing my head against a brick wall until I come, come up with some miraculous solution, I'll, I'll jump to another part and then I'll get bored in two seconds and jump to another part. And some of that's a little bit of um, neurodivergence, but then also some of that is also because we now can do those things and we've created a behavior to uh, kind of like an easy way out. And, but I do think it does. I think it comes back around. It's not like an easy solution because it comes back around in the form of like, now I have to go through and patch all this together, make it cohesive. And and that, that's a huge amount of time. I mean, I'm probably speaking your language. I mean, you probably, you're probably like, oh yeah. 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 Oh, <laughs> for
0: sure. For sure you are. But I'm I'm always curious because I I find like a mix. I I feel like the majority of writers that I know are, are similar to you. And I think, I, I would say probably 80, 85% of the time I do the exact same thing. Every now and again, I will either just take a break where I'm just like, this is not, I I just gotta like, you know, go for a walk or something like this is just not gonna happen today. Or I will sit down and just like force myself to wrestle with it, which has, you know, it has a variety of results. Sometimes I'm like, oh, that was a really good idea. I just needed to force myself. And other times I end up, I think, blowing it up. And I'm like, this is so much worse than what I started with. (laughs) Can I need to go back?
1: Yeah, but you you needed to blow it up before you could go back, right? Like that's, that's sort of the lesson you learn,
0: right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting hearing you talk about having to just walk away I think that one of the things that occurs in our family a lot especially in that last third of the process is my wife asking me oh like how much longer do you think and and doing it (laughs) only for my only for either a, a logistical reason or because she's trying to sort of cheerlead me through the last really hard parts sure and she'll and I'll say oh you know an hour or you know a half a day and it always ends up being five or six times longer and then even then i'm not done and then she'll ask me and it gets to the point where there are moments when i will have to just be like i it's not happening i gotta get up and go like it's i can't pretend it's gonna happen in the next 30 minutes i need to so yeah. i definitely do do that and i do wrestle with stuff until it gets to a point where i get something down and i feel like okay i did something and i'll come back to it tomorrow i need to throw it out or realize it was a piece of beautiful gold.
0: Yeah, yeah. Very yeah, there's al- there's always this tension I feel like in terms of like how much how much do you force yourself through, you know, in terms of like just having a discipline where you're just like I will do this regardless of what the outcome is versus how much do you sometimes say, you know what, it's just not going to happen today and Yeah. It's everybody answers that a little bit differently, but I think it's it's a question that's always worth asking.
1: It's worth asking and I think it's an incredible question to ask, especially if people like us who there's no reason we need to be doing this. This is something we're choosing to do, right? We're choosing to do it, and we're like, "Got to figure this out." And they're like, "Just get up and leave." And you're like, "No, but I'm gonna force my way through it." They're like, "You don't even need to be doing this. Like, this isn't even your job or whatever." But for some reason, you just have to figure it out, and then you do that hundreds of times over the years. It's yeah, it's such a fascinating thing.
0: This, it's this weird internal drive, which actually reminds me of um, an Anne Lamott quote that is, I'm, I'm not going to get it verbatim, but it's something about being a writer is being in the business of coming into full consciousness. Mm. It's about asking yourself, am I willing to become fully alive? Mm. And I, I don't know if that resonates with you or not, but that's that's something that I think about sometimes. It's like, because there are, you know, those moments where you write something and they're they're not the majority of moments, at least for me. By far, they're not the majority of moments. But those, those moments where you write something where you're just like that encapsulates like the world as I see it, life mm-hmm. as I have lived it, experience as I have observed it. Like it's right there. But those moments are few and far between. But it's like those you're striving for those moments. And- yeah, it's
1: like an, some form of enlightenment, right? You have to yeah get through all of that uh, all that labor, and you never know when it's going to strike. But it's Usually, when you least expect it, I it is interesting too because it's you know in the end what we are physically doing and sort of it is sitting at a computer or you know a typewriter on pen and paper and you are you're not living in the same way that you would think of like oh I'm I'm living right it's mm. I'm I'm sort of like vicariously or or I'm commenting on something that's that's outside of myself right now and this it's a very internal kind of discovery that you're making. You asked before about inputs and outputs and. You know, I I struggle with that a lot because so much of our time is spent attached to our implements and all I want to do in my life now is to try to live more and try and especially after the the pandemic and all, you know, sort of being on computers all the time and being in our homes a lot of the time is like, Mm -hmm. I want to go out and I want to gather all these sensations. I want to gather these experiences as much as I can now while at the same time affording myself the time and the, the headspace to then write about them. So I do think there's a, you know, I worry about, and I know that I shouldn't because they're, you know, doing just fine. But a lot, a lot of the writers who sort of like write, primarily from a place of like shh, pump out work. And it's, and it's, there's you know, like, they don't do a lot of kind of going outside of their, their own space and sort of, you know, doing that kind of a traditional living, you know, but at the same time, that's, that's defined how we define it.
0: You have two kids. Is that right? Yes. Two. How, how has being a father changed the way that you tell stories?
1: This might be something that a lot of parents a lot of parents who are writers tried this might be something that they, they tried to do as well. I, I wonder if it is, but it's something I definitely tried to do is when I had kids at certain ages, I was like, I'm gonna write something for those kids. I'm gonna like, you know, if I if I write X genre or style, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a break and try and write for a picture book or do something else because I want my kid to experience what I, you know, what I love and what I do. I always make the joke that I kind of ended up writing the books my kids would like finally, and now they're both like. You know, college and stuff like that. So it's, it, it's, it's like it took me their entire childhood to write the children's book that they would never want to read. But I think that the cool thing, one of the cool things about having a kid is you end up reading a lot to them, or you should if you don't. And so you are you are exposed to, and in some cases maybe like kind of re-exposed to the bot like to this immense canon of of books from picture books up to chapter books, middle grade books, and and YA, and and you just kind of rediscover it if you if you're not familiar with it, or if you were when you were young, and just see how much stuff is out there. That's incredible. And you get to take you get to participate in it with your kids. Um, it's something that, you know, from when they're very little, and you're reading them picture books, to when they're older, and you're, you're kind of talking about a book that you read, once that they are now reading and kind of sharing those moments together. It like so many things as a, as a parent, you are uh engaging with the world in in a way that allows you to see it again kind of for and with new eyes fresh eyes so that's great i think from a literary perspective and then one thing that we as a family rediscovered was reading aloud um mm. because we did that with our kids you know from the very beginning it was always something we did um but we continue to do it now and our kids now read to us and we read like family
0: really? reading nights
1: yeah, um, our oldest loves reading aloud to their friends over Discord, like online to friends who were in a couple other countries. And they do like a book club, but it's pretty much just they pick a book and then my child reads to them. That's super uh, cool. And our, yeah. And, we, and over the pandemic, we we read a, a ton of books and we would take turns reading them aloud and we would all kind of gather around. My wife would do a puzzle. I would do a game or tinker with something. And my, other do- my, my daughter would color in like one of those adult coloring books. And then my eldest would um, would read and we would take turns. And it was just a great thing. It was a very like throwback-y thing to do during the pandemic and we still do it.
0: I had um, a guest on this podcast back a number of weeks ago, Emma Snyder, who runs a couple of in the Baltimore area. Yeah, I know Emma Snyder. Area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, she, she shared a story about some of her earliest memories with her parents and they both involved reading books together Mm -hmm. and just how like that had always stuck with her and she just like she remembered those books she remembered all the emotions from that time and there is just something i mean in our very digital very connected world which has its own set of perks and and things that it gives us it's it is it's something that's very grounding i think and it's it creates some memories that are a little bit different in their form than i think some of the other things that we do together these days yeah
1: I mean, we still talk about picture books that we read to our kids as infants that they remember, like kind of the, in the in the recesses, in the foggy recesses of their mind, they have a an image in their head or a page layout that they remember, but they don't know what book it was from. But it's just going to be there with them for forever, and that that means a lot to us. It's a very stripped down, very kind of real memory that. Uh, in in all of this, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of artificiality out there in the world, but those things just feel true and feel. Um, real. I I like that.
0: So Andy, if any of our listeners want to go buy Spellbinders or find any of your other work, where should they go? Where should they find you online?
1: Online, you can find Spellbinders at most online retailers, like a bookstore, like the indie retailer, uh, Amazon. Barnes and Noble, Walmart, like all those places. If you're in the Baltimore area or in any area, but in the Baltimore area, you can go to the Ivy Book Shop. They've been mm-hmm. an amazing collaborator with me on Spellbinders. Same thing with Snug Books in Laurelville. They're they're great. And then you know, there's uh, several other indies kind of in the Baltimore area in D.C., you should definitely check out. They they carry Spellbinders as well. And then Spellbindersbooks.com is sort of where I've made the home for Spellbinders Online. And as new announcements and news comes for the series, I'm going to put that there and it'll have events and things like that as well.
0: Fabulous. And we'll drop a link for that in the show notes as well. So any listeners who would like to go buy Spellbinders or go check out your other work, you can definitely easily click on one of those links.
1: Yes, and, and I, I should <laughs> add also that I do have my own personal website, which is com, which is spelled A-N-D-R-E-W-A-U-S-E-O-N. That has other projects I'm working on that are not, you know, past books that I've mentioned, but then also has some of the video games I've worked on and things like that and other things that I've done with frequent collaborators and friends who are also, you know, really into doing a lot of creative stuff in their own time.
0: Well, Andy, thank you so much for being on the show today. This was a lot of fun. I loved getting to just hear about your process and hear about what went into creating Spellbinders. It's a really fun book. I really encourage our listeners to go out and read it. If you've got kids um, who are kind of that middle grade level, this is a perfect book for them. But also, if you're just looking for something that's a little bit magical, that's just going to take you on a journey where you just feel good afterwards, I definitely recommend it.
1: Well, thank you, Tiffany. This has been a ton of fun.